Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. Welcome to episode 95 of the Kaiju Cast, a bi-monthly podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. My name is Kyle, and this is a very awesome episode, which is uh, actually, in addition to being 95, it is the second episode for October 2013, where normally we have a Daikaiju discussion, but uh, because I'm heading to the land of the rising sun in just a few days, uh, I thought what I'd do is play one of those... I've been sitting on this interview for a long time episodes. Uh, essentially, I interviewed Ed Gojicheski, and he was a great person to talk to and a huge fan of Godzilla. If you have no idea who I'm talking about, then you need to you need to check out Japanese Giants. If you haven't seen Bringing Godzilla Down to Size, he co-produced that. If you haven't read his articles or just known who he is, he is a huge proponent for Godzilla in the fandom, uh, and man, such a good dude. We had a great chat. He brought some awesome stuff to show off, uh, which I, I we're gonna have a video for this as well. Mike Weber, who um, thanks to Mike, we used his mom's house <laughs> to record the interview in, and uh, it was really it was really very cool. Anyway, we're gonna play that. It's a sort of a low key production value uh, episode of the Kaiju Cast, and so basically. That's what we're doing for this particular episode. And then I'll be back after the interview with a tiny, tiny little bit of information for you to just close out the show. But we are going to go ahead and start things off 
with a request from Ben. He wanted to hear the Ultraman Max theme. house is ed gojicheski did i say your name right close enough close enough okay <laughs> i really struggled with that my first year of doing the podcast and um then someone pointed it out to me and i i think i had the egg on my face look and i was like oh no <laughs> uh, that's okay i've heard it pronounced a hundred thousand different ways uh ed is a a long time godzilla fan and if you are if you're a fan of godzilla then you'll know his work in various magazines, most notably for me, Japanese Giants. And uh, 
you're you did a whole bunch of work on the commentaries for the classic media discs and some of the other uh godzilla dvds that are out there and and you're working on a book correct me if i'm wrong with steve rifle on ishiro honda's life right that's correct uh so it, did i miss anything like what else have you been uh acclaim what's your acclaim in godzilla history here now <laughs> well, i i don't have any acclaim other than i'm a fan of this stuff but uh I, I, probably the other thing that i've done that's pretty significant i think is the working on the documentary film that uh, oh yes steve and i put together you know back in 2007 yeah a great documentary bringing godzilla down to size love love it so much uh it was that is a thrill to watch actually for for me because where i am in my godzilla fandom is uh, clearly I've moved out of the just watching the films and then collecting the toys. And now I'm learning about all of the backstories and, uh, you know, who the, who the directors actually were and who the, who the actors actually were and the special effects, like seeing your stuff with, uh, in was amazing. That was, that was really cool that you guys got to sit there in the suit, in the workshop and shoot yeah. the underwater volcano. That was quite an amazing day. Uh, it's certainly something I'll, I'll never forget. You know, one, one thing that was really so great about being there that day is, you know, you got all these guys, who, you know, there's like four generations of different guys uh, working on this particular setup for us that day. And I mean, honestly, it sounds corny to say it, but you know, you could really feel that spirit that they had mm. working on those old films. It was really like electric tension in the room. That's you know, that really. They, cool. It was. It was just so cool to be there and see that. Uh, it was. It was really a, a wonderful experience. And and they, they set that up for us. Uh, you know, uh, we want to of course feature Inoue in this particular right. documentary. And uh, when they heard that we wanted to do this the actually mr inoue and his guys suggested doing this demonstration so it wasn't anything that we had actually planned or thought that they were going to do but they you know set up a whole set aside a whole uh, extra day for us to do that and they pulled the whole thing off on their own it was it was great that's awesome so what i probably should do because uh, <clears throat> for the people listening at home and and watching uh, on the video uh, they are unfamiliar with who uh, is it yakisuki Yasu, Yasu Yasuyuki. Yasuyuki. Yes. Just had that just flipped. Uh, Yasuyuki Inoue was one of the major special effects guys in at Toho during the 50s and 60s, right? Right. He started out as assistant art director and eventually got promoted to art director when uh, Akira Watanabe left Toho. And basically, as the art director, he's not only you know, in charge of doing a lot of design work, he's also in charge of like the model makers and the set builders and all those guys. He's coordinating everything. So mm -hmm. he's got a whole, you know, slew of people working under him. And uh, as you know, I'd find out over the, the time that I got to know him, that, you know, all these guys who worked for him had just the very greatest respect for this guy. And they all really admired him enormously. And he had a really hard, you know, strong work ethic, uh, something that all these guys learned from him. I mean, they, so many of them call them, call him, you know, their life teacher. Mm -hmm. They had that much respect for the guy. And, and whenever I'd go over there to see him, you know, a number of these guys would show up and you can see that they, in their eyes, how they respect him. And they all rally around him to kind of, you know, help him out and make sure everything's going well for him. You know, if, if, if you're a person who's in charge of a number of people, you know, a lot of people generally don't like you or, right. you know, you're, you're not uh, you're the exactly boss. the, yeah. yeah, you're, you're the boss and you're kind of like a separate person, but all these guys 
to a man, every person I met, they all had the very greatest respect for him. And, you know, even in, even in retirement, they all gathered around him and showed him just enormous respect. And, and you could feel a really, really strong bond between these guys. That is amazing. And the fact, how did you end up meeting him? Like, well, uh, it's, uh, interestingly enough, he was, uh, invited to, uh, the American Cinematheque when they were having a Godzilla festival in, I think it was 2003. And, uh, uh, a Japanese guy named Oki Miyano, he had moved to the U.S., uh, just shortly before that. And he had gotten in touch with Steve Rifle. He, he, you know, took up residence in, in LA. And so he got to know Steve, and of course, you know, once he arranged for this uh, appearance for Mr. Inoue at the, the festival, uh, I happened to be in L.A. on a business trip at, at the end of one of my business trips. <laughs> was one of those weekends where yeah. they were showing films, including my, my print of Rodan, uh, which unfortunately I didn't get to see that that weekend. Oh, right. We should talk but, about that, too, yeah. your your film collection yes. as well. But, uh, that's but, so you get to meet him. Yeah, but anyway, so that was the first time I met him. And then shortly thereafter, I had my one of my uh, normally scheduled business trips to Japan, and Oki was going there at the same time, so he was already in Japan for about a week. And you know, he told me, "Well, why don't you come out and meet Mr. Inoue?" I guess he had—I I didn't realize—but he had just met him, you know, very recently. Hmm. But Oki used to work in uh, Haruma Modelcraft, which is a miniature-making studio, uh, also in the Tokyo area. And, you know, Haruma Modelcraft provided models for a number of TV shows and movies, and they do a lot of stuff for uh, exhibitions and for the news and, you know, whatever whatever purpose would need a, mo- a model to be made. Right. Uh, he was working for them. And so, you know, he, he already had a really strong interest in miniature making. He wasn't necessarily so much a fan of monsters or anything like right, that. Right, right. But, but he admired special effects movies, especially those with miniatures. And that was his real interest. And so when he found out a way to contact Inoue, you know, he became real fast friends with him. And, you know, fortunately, Oki uh, saw fit to introduce me to Inoue and take him over there. And I remember that, for, especially the first night that I got to to meet with him. I mean, he start, went over to his cabinet and he's pulling out all these, you know, production designs and storyboards and things from all the different Toho movies. And, you know, you Those know, just, which, of course, so blows you away. I am sure, like, because you sent me... Uh, some stuff for the film festival that I did in 2004, Mm -hmm. which we had on display. But I can only imagine seeing the real drawings and (laughs) schematics in person and how that just must just blow the mind. Oh, yeah, it did. I mean, I I had no idea that that stuff existed. And I'm sure probably 95% of fans in Japan had no idea that stuff existed. Uh, So I felt really, really fortunate that I could even, you know, find out that it existed and see it was was in a way well known in um i guess in sort of the uh, godzilla historian circles like was he well known Not until that point because no. i don't think i had ever heard of him until no. that I, and I he essentially had ex- heard of him. that was yeah. essentially him exploding onto the scene yeah. well, i hadn't heard of him either yeah uh, i mean yeah okay I, I i can say i've seen his name in some of the credits right. but you don't think of him and and you know and, and one of the things you find out when in talking with these guys, especially, is that, you know, in in the special effects uh, fandom or not fandom, in, in in the world of special effects, the guys who get all the publicity and who have all the stories written about them and get the interviews, that's, 
you know, Tsuburaya and mm-hmm. Nakano and Arakawa, you know, those guys who were like the, the leaders of the group. Right, but all yeah. the rest of the guys who were underneath them, very few people knew who they were. And you they know, don't even, get that bright spotlight. Yeah, and them, even you know. less pe- less of the you know, less often would they ever get talked to. I mean, I as I look back into some of my really old books, uh, I think I found one or two times where Inoue had been interviewed. Hmm. Uh, if you go back before two thousand, so yeah, I mean, it's like somebody knew about him, but nobody really Were pursued him or, or gave him books or yeah, Japanese yeah, books. Yeah, that's. Really so, cool that you yeah. had that opportunity. Yeah. To, Even in his own country, he was really relatively unknown. And I had no idea that Oki worked for a modeling company. Yes. Like that's, yeah. When, when he was in Japan, before yeah. he moved to the U.S., he was working for Haruma Modelcraft. Very cool. Right on. Yeah. So how did how did you find your love for for these movies, man? <laughs> I mean, well, I, I've heard I've heard stories and tales on the commentaries, but uh, yeah. for those that can't access those for one yeah. reason or another. Well, when it comes to Godzilla himself, well, you know, it's, it's it's very very clear in my mind where that comes from. It's you know, I was in the theater and I think it was July of 1962 or 3, I forget which it was. But anyway, uh seeing a double feature with, you know, my mom and my brother and my sister and trailer comes on for King Kong versus Godzilla and it just, you know, knocked me over. Uh I look at this giant dinosaur first it comes on the screen and you know like most kids i'm a super dinosaur lover yeah so as soon as i see this like wow this is a fantastic looking dinosaur and then it starts shooting this you know atomic breath and it's like holy cow (laughs) i have to go and i and 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 it's you, you it sounds like an exaggeration but i really don't think it was i must have Reminding my mom about a thousand times that week that aren't we going to go see King Kong versus Godzilla next week? Are cool. we going to go see that next week? And of course we did, and that's kind of what started me on my love for Godzilla. That started your that. your boulder rolling down the hill yeah. of giant monster yeah. movies. Nice. And, I, and and maybe a year or two before that, I, I remember there was a, a showing on I think it was Chillaram or. Chiller, not Chiller Theater, but I think it was Chillaram or something like that. As a, it was like a, a very late night. Uh, movie showing on the weekends in Chicago and they were showing something called Godzilla, which I didn't know what it was. I just knew it was some kind of monster movie and it was on at 1030 at night. And, you know, here's like little six or seven year old me. And it's like, Hey, can I stay up and see this mom? And, you know, okay. They, they let me, gave me permission to stay up, but you know, I didn't know what it was. I just right. knew it was some kind of monster. So I'm <laughs> kind of like sitting there really scared. Like what's going on? What, what's this going to be like? I don't even know what kind of monster this is. And in fact, I was so scared. Like after the first few minutes, I kind of like my brother sitting over in a, in the, the easy chair and I kind of sneak in there and sitting with him because I'm too scared to sit by myself. <laughs> and I got all the way up through the scene you know, on Odo Island with the storm. Yeah. Okay. And then after the storm, they cut to commercial and it's like, okay, I can't take it anymore. I got to go to bed. <laughs> Good night. And so I went to bed and I'm, so I'm, you know, by, by five minutes, probably I just missed God seeing Godzilla oh, for yeah, the first time. And so all I could hear about it was the next day from my brother. Oh, he was this giant dinosaur and he did this. And I, and I felt of course really disappointed, but so I never, I never got a chance to see Godzilla. I didn't even know that there would be another movie made until, yeah, yeah whatever, the next year or so that <laughs> King Kong vs. Godzilla came around. And that started me off. And Wait, you were how old with King Kong vs. Godzilla? Uh, well, uh, at that time, I'd have been like 9 or 10. 
So you basically you were around in when Godzilla was coming to theaters. Like yes. so you got to see King Kong versus Godzilla. Did yes, you get I to did. see Godzilla versus the Thing? Yes, I did. And oh yes. And, I, I know and, you've and seen Gidra, Destroy All Monsters. Gidra, and, Destroy All nice. Monsters. Uh I saw almost every film that was released theatrically here except for Frankenstein Conquers the World, which somehow I don't know I was just unaware if it if mm-hmm. that passed through Chicago. I don't know how I missed it, but you know, Frankenstein Probably I saw the, the title Frankenstein. I was like, oh, well, Frankenstein, that's not a giant right, monster, right. so I don't know, who cares? How long did it take you to actually get infatuated with the giant monster genre? Because like, well, I guess it was at the time Godzilla. it was really, a, really it, not a giant monster genre at the time. I saw Gorgo when it was first released. Nice. And that was, you know, of course, again, like I said, I'm already interested in dinosaurs and that yeah. kind of thing. And so Gorgo was like oh, right up my alley. And uh, Gorgo did it for me. That that already got me interested in giant monsters. So anything like that, after seeing Gorgo, you know, watching, you know, the the afternoon movies on uh, local television, mm-hmm. Channel Seven would have uh, their monster movies on Mondays every week. Channel Two, I think, had them on either Tuesdays or Thursdays every week. So you know, after school, you get home and watch whatever kind of monster movie or science fiction movie was on every week. So That's I was already so cool. getting inundated with that yeah. at that age. So tell me a little bit about uh, the magazine, Japanese Giants, and, and how you started that, since we're talking about your your love for Japanese Giants. Is you, yeah, yes. you went the next step and as far as like being a fan, and you decided to make your own magazine. Yeah. When mm-hmm. was the first issue? First issue that I did was number five, which would be 1976, maybe, or seven, Oh, so you were working with somebody else at the time? Or? Well, you know, up until maybe 1973, I mean, I didn't have anything. I didn't know anything. I didn't have anything. There was, there were, I mean, I, I probably, in, I think in 1969, I saw an issue of Famous Monsters at a newsstand in a, in a subway station. And, you know, I, I remember that issue that was the one with King Kong versus Godzilla in it. And I always thought, boy, I really would like to get this. But, you know, at that time I didn't have the 50 cents or whatever it was mm-hmm. to buy it. And so until that time, I didn't have, I didn't have any magazines. I didn't, I just, you know, watch these films assiduously when they're on television. Uh, but I didn't have any access to anything. And then probably around 72, 73 when I was in college, I found an issue of Famous Monsters, and I got one that had Greg Shoemaker's address in the back where, you know, it said Japanese Fantasy Film Journal. It's like, oh, a magazine on this stuff? Wow, somebody likes this stuff other than me? So I wrote to him and, you know, got a couple issues, and from getting to know uh, JFFJ, Japanese Fantasy Film Journal, uh, you know, that kind of got me even more interested and then I was able to start you know finding a couple issues here and there of famous monsters started learning a little bit about this stuff and I think through uh, Greg Shoemaker I I got to meet a person in, down in the, in the city of Chicago uh, Greg Ferret who used to show uh, 35 millimeter film prints every week mm. of various different types of films and through him, then I got to you know, meet Bill Goodmanson, who... Oh, so you've known Bill for quite some time. Since 75 or 6, something like that. Wow. Um, 
And uh, through Bill, you know, Bill kind of set me up and gave me addresses of a lot of different people to write to. And so I got in touch with a, a number of people around the country who were interested in Japanese films because, like I said, up to that point, I think I was like a lot of people in this pre-internet world and, you know, nobody's connected, you know, we're the only way you, you contact people is either you call them on the phone or you write a letter. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I did a lot of letter writing at that time and got in touch with a number of people. One of them was Mark Rainey, who uh, was the originator of Japanese Giants. He did the first few issues. And by the time I got to know him, he had handed it off to Brad Boyle in, out in Salt Lake City. And Brad did one issue. <clears throat> uh, one issue, maybe? Oh, yeah, one issue. And then he was wasn't able to continue on with it okay and so i thought oh, you know i kind of like the you know like what greg shoemaker does and oh, it'd be kind of fun to do some writing uh, so well, why not so i asked you know brad if he was going to give it up you know would he mind if i take it over so sure he handed it over to me and so i kind of took it over from there just uh, just as a as a lark you know i i, I didn't have any speci specific uh ambitions other than it'd be fun to write something right yeah and uh <clears throat> that was that was still i was probably just at the f uh, first moment where i was getting to know a couple of people in japan again thanks to bill you know bill uh, was kind enough to share a couple of his contacts in japan with me and started writing to them and then, you know a little bit by little bit you start to find out a some information which was always fascinating to me. I wanted to know, but I never knew how you could find that stuff out, at least not in, in, in the States. <clears throat> so, you know, I was able to, you know, start building, a, you know, a, a network of people to contact and getting information a little bit by little bit. And right around, you know, late seventies is when Godzilla started to get a little more popular in Japan and they started to release a few books, which, for about four or five years from the late 70s, they weren't releasing anything. Mm -hmm. right, right. A little bit of a revival started, and a few Godzilla books started coming out, and some of them started coming out with behind-the-scenes stuff, which was uh, cool. super exciting, especially at that time where nobody had seen anything behind the scenes on this stuff. So that kind of got interesting, and so I thought, okay, now I'm starting to get some, uh, some access to materials. Now... Boy, I really want to continue this magazine because I think I can write stuff that, you know, it's not just, oh, I like this movie because this and this and this. You know, anybody can write that kind of thing. Right. It quickly became my kind of goal with the magazine is to be able to write about stuff that normally you can't find anywhere. So it's not just like Joe Schmo's opinion, but, you know, the you know, like how these things were made and, you know, kind of like the backgrounds of people who were behind the film and what were some of the ideas or what were some of the things that they wanted to do but they couldn't do. Well, the first issues of, of the magazine before you took <clears throat> it over, were they more focused on just like more editorial like or yeah or, uh, you know think of that time nobody had access to right, any kind yeah. of materials so what the first few issues were mainly like film books mm -hmm. you know, and you know especially back in the 70s fanzines were really fanzines i mean they were total fan uh, efforts and you know what could people do other than you know you, you see the film and you kind of like write a very long detailed story summary mm -hmm. which they used to call film books and then, you know, typically sometimes, you know, that would be followed by somebody's critical opinion on it. Right. And, you know, you'd have other, you know, like, articles about, oh, you know, here's, like, 
a lot of people hadn't heard about Johnny Sacco, for instance, so somebody wrote in a short article about that. There was the old Marvel Godzilla comic, which yes. there was, we did, we did a, uh, I know Brad Boyle did a couple of you know, articles about, and, you know, at that time, too, people were just becoming aware of some of the 70s films, which hadn't been yet released in the U.S., okay. so it was kind of interesting for the people to to write about that, to let people know what's going on in the world of Godzilla. I mean, I was lucky I had gotten in touch with Andre Dubois in Canada, and in Canada they had already seen Terror of Mechagodzilla, because hmm. the French version of that had been released. So that was like my kind of like my one of my feature articles in the first issue that I did is like, wow, here's a Godzilla film that nobody's seen. Yeah. And yeah. I have somebody who was able to write a nice, long, detailed article. You had the article. fanzine scoop on Terror of Mechagodzilla. <laughs> yeah. Did... Uh, now, do you remember what your first article you wrote about My was? first one was Latitude Zero. Excellent. <laughs> I did the film book and commentary on Latitude Zero. And, you know, one of the reasons I picked that is that, you know, like Frankenstein Conquers World, that was one of those Japanese films that came and went through Chicago. I didn't have the slightest idea it was a Japanese film. Right. So I never went to see it. Uh, I mean, I didn't even know about it. And having got the... Uh, FM, what's that, 114, the Japanese monster issue, there were a couple of pictures from a movie called Latitude Zero. It's like, ooh, okay, Latitude Zero. I got to watch for that. And at one point, uh, I got a chance to buy a 16-millimeter scope print of that. And not just scope, but it was Technicolor, so it was fabulous to see that, you know, not just in scope, but also in Technicolor. So that was my first chance. I bought the film Sight Unseen on 16 millimeter wow and that was the first time i ever saw it and i loved it and so i thought okay this is a film that not many people even know about so what better film to start writing for myself about than something that a lot of people haven't seen and something i thought had you know a lot of really interesting stuff in it it's also speaking to latitude zero it's also it does have some sort of a an appeal to american uh audiences just because of the cast yeah uh, i mean i certainly when i saw it many 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 years after it came out was uh just enthralled with the fact that caesar uh, romero was in it yeah yeah he and he was great he's he's totally wonderful a complete in that. maniac in that film yes yeah. absolutely so that's that's great that's your first article was on yes. latitude zero and that was in number uh, five number five yeah very cool so uh, today, it's not a, for the listeners out there that don't know about Japanese Giants, Japanese Giants is not a regular magazine by any, highly uh, regular, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I believe since I've been aware of it, you had two issues come out the sort of GMK issue yes. and then the issue that had, uh, um, Bob Eggleton's Godzilla, or, uh, you know, 54 Godzilla on the cover. Yeah. Uh, how how's the magazine what's the what's the current status of of japanese giants well sadly the current status is uh probably on permanent hold because you know those two issues that you mentioned you know, I, I mean I, I put a lot of work into them and i i'm really proud of you know how they came out but they just haven't sold right i mean yeah. i have boxes and boxes of each one sitting you know in actually it's in my office now uh you know at work just unsold magazines because yeah. it just doesn't sell that well. Now, granted, part of the reason is probably because I don't really publicize it, you know, like take out a lot of ads and, and draw a lot of attention to it. 
I think you know the more you advertise and and try and make it something that's really widely distributed that's when you you tend to draw toho's attention and and they kind of probably will go out of their way to try and tell you to stop can we talk about toho's attention real quick sure can because i think you know what i'm probably gonna ask you about uh you you not only do the magazine but you also wrote a book yes uh the encyclopedia of godzilla illustrated encyclopedia Encyclopedia. uh so you want do you want to talk about it i don't want i don't want you to have i don't mind to talk yeah so what what happened with the book you you decided to to set out and make your own book and this was That was, was in just 95, 95 or, yeah, about 95 was when it came out. So, yeah, I, I was really working very hard on the book through 92, 93, 94. Uh, at that time, uh, I think probably around 92, uh, a friend of mine in, in Chicago, Alex Wald, he was working together with Books Nippon. And Books Nippon was trying to work out a deal with Toho to do a Godzilla book. And they asked Alex, you know, you know anybody who wants to write this thing? And so Alex kindly thought of me and suggested me to them. And, you know, there was no contract or anything yet, but, you know, basically he said, you know, here's what they want to do. Uh, will you be interested? Yeah, are you kidding? Of course I yeah. would be. <laughs> and so even though it was jumping the gun, I thought, okay, I'm going to start working on it in case this thing turns out to be real. Right. And, you know, things kind of went back and forth for a year, and for whatever reason, the deal sort of fell apart. But by that time, I had already written <clears throat> probably about half of what turned out to be the final version of the book. So I thought, well, geez, it's kind of a shame to just let this stuff sit here and, and not have a way to use it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I thought, hmm. Okay, you know, I'll I'll just finish this book and you know I'll lay it all out by myself because I had just learned PageMaker uh, as a layout program and you know I was using that at my job for doing some of the technical documents for my company. So okay, I know how to do that and I got myself a scanner and everything. You know, yeah, why not? Let's just make a book the way I would have wanted to see it and maybe I'll just okay make some PDF copies or something for people and leave it at that. Uh, and that's probably where I, what I would have, you know, wound up doing with it. Uh, but at that time, uh, it was around the time I got to know JD Lee's from G Fan magazine. And, you know, we became pretty good friends. And, uh, he suggested, he said, well, you know, why don't you just go ahead and publish it or, you know, get it printed up and, you know, through the magazine, I can help you sell it. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I knew that, okay, that's, you know, there's the potential that there's going to be some kind of issue with Toho, but you know, I'll I'll say quite honestly, I thought, okay, if they come, you know, after we, you know, if we can get it out, if they come back later and have a problem with it, I'm sure they're going to want money. I don't, you know, I don't care whatsoever about whatever money we get out of this from selling this book. So if they want it, good, they can have it. Right. I really don't care because you were. I'd just rather do. It, I'd rather do the book. Yeah, That's, you, you know, were just in it to. I want to get it to out. share information yeah. and, and and the pictures. Really cool. Yeah, the pictures, which I know that they would never put out by themselves. Especially, you know, one of my one of my goals in doing that book was to get pictures that people hadn't seen and probably were unlikely to see. I went out of my way not to pick your stock standard pictures that right. everybody sees. So I was like, okay, so if they do that. I don't mind. I'll, I will gladly, 
you know, turn the money over to them because that's not what I was doing the book for in the first place. Right. Yeah. Uh, and well, sure enough, they heard about it. However, they heard about it, I don't know. But uh, yeah, and they objected and they said, okay, please, you know, turn over all the unsold copies to us, which wasn't an, you know, much of a problem because I think to that point we sold them all except for like 10 or 12. How would, if you had to guess, I think how many? A, I think the print made. run was. 500? I don't remember if it was 500 or 1,000, to be honest. Wow. But anyway, whatever whatever it was that we printed at the time, uh, we basically sold them all out except for, you know, like 10 or 12. And, you know, I'd given a bunch away, of course, as like, you know, complimentary copies to people in of Japan. Course. People would help me out. Uh, so, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't take a huge loss on it or anything. Right. And I feel good that I got out a book which I think was you know a reasonably good book to uh, you know for both beginners to learn about Godzilla and people who really know a lot more to get something out of it that they could you know couldn't have gotten anywhere else yeah well so, I know that, that you know for me I don't own your book unfortunately but uh, I got to see it at Keith Aiken's house one time mm -hmm. and uh, I, I it's a it's a rare book. I mean, people, not many people know about it. And, uh, I think it's great that you were able to get so many copies it, from, from the run into the hands mm -hmm. of people who, who love yeah. that stuff. That's really great. Now is, uh, wh what was the, was the issue, the content or was the issue, the name, do you think? Like, the I, don't think that I, got I don't think content was any issue whatsoever. Yeah. hundred percent. It's the photographs. Oh, okay. Gotcha. That's, what you know they want i mean when when we did the documentary film uh yeah i mean all those pictures that we used we had to pay what i considered as a very steep licensing fee for mm -hmm. each one and you know with a limited budget that's why unfortunately you wind up seeing you know a lot of the same pictures multiple times during the course of the documentary because right. you know there's only so much that you have for the budget that we could allow to you know use both footage and uh, photographs. I see. So are you? So right now, Japanese Giants is uh, on on hold, yeah. and for la for la for lack of you know resources, basically. Right. Yeah, if I if I didn't if money was no object and I could just uh, take a loss on every issue, yeah, I could keep going. <laughs> but you know, as long as it doesn't sell well, uh, sadly, I mean, it's just I'm just killing myself by putting out another issue as much as I would love to do it. And I have, if, I, I if believe I have a lot of information. A, yeah. If people I wanted remember. to get a hold of them, like Japanese giants issues would, they could go to the website, right? Yes. Yes. Japanese giants.com. All right. I'll add the link in the show notes to that, yes. of course. Uh, so let's switch gears. Let's talk a okay. little bit about, about Japan because <clears throat> uh, you've been to Japan a lot and you've gotten to um, do some really amazing things. I'll actually share something with the listeners. The The reason I met Ed online first is that he, at, at G-Fest in 1999, I, I was looking for footage of my son in the costume contest as, as gear on. And uh, either I put it out on alt.movies.monsters and somehow I got in touch with Ed. And uh, you you gave me a videotape. You sent me a videotape, uh, and I was actually just telling Mike about this earlier. 
not only was the footage from G-Fest on there, but footage from your trip to Toho's, uh, essentially their effects warehouse, right? And I had no idea that was on there. And I was, uh, I think I lost my mind a little bit. That may be what put me down the path of, of, uh, going, going down this massive kaiju journey of, of my own. But, uh, how on earth did you get to, to Toho, uh, and, and be able to go? I mean, I'm assuming that's all stemmed from, uh, Bill's contacts, essentially. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly what it was. Uh, one of Bill's contacts was a guy named Saki Hijiri, who, uh, is pretty well known in Japan. He's like a big science fiction, uh, writer and, you know, like one of the, the, the first big fans that was, you know, in this, this business. And, you know, so because he was very well known and well connected in Japan, he knew a lot of different people in, in, you know, the film business. Uh, in fact, his dad used to be one of the guys. If, you, if you've ever seen books that show some of the, the old, uh, movie theater facades, uh, you know, they used to have fabulously intricate paintings, uh, to illustrate, you know, whatever movie was out, you mm. know, like, uh, Ten Commandments, you know, there's like these beautiful murals of the parting of the Red Sea and for the Godzilla films, you know, you know pictures of the monsters that were done in, the, in this really nice illustration style. His dad used to do that in the movie theaters. That's what Saki's dad used to do. Oh, that's awesome. so. So, I mean, he he was, you know, involved with film for a long time, even as a kid. You know, his dad had those contacts. And then, you know, when he got to be a bit older, he was uh, one of the feature writers for Uchu, Uchu Sen magazine. I, so he was I very well. Juju said magazine. Yes, right. So he was that. well connected, and uh, so Bill, you know, when when I had my first trip to Japan planned in 1979, Bill wrote to Saki and said, you know, you know, my friend Ed is going to be going uh, to Japan. Can you possibly hook him up with somebody, and you know, possibly maybe even arrange for him to visit Toho? And uh, <laughs> I'll never forget the letter he got back um, that <laughs> said it in a very strange way. He says, well, unfortunately, it's okay. <laughs> you know, just a little bit lost in, uh, in, in the English uh, translation, I guess, that he made in his letter. But I've gotten a so couple of like, responses like that, too, like, before. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately. So, yeah. 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 So we went to Japan, you know, my, myself and a couple other friends of mine. Uh, and I, you know, we met a, uh, a number of, uh, fans, uh, a guy named Kazuo Sumiya, who's been my longtime contact in Japan, who was able to get me to, you know, not only to Toho, but to meet guys like Ife Kube. Mm -hmm. So I'm very thankful to, to him. I also, in that first trip, got to meet Yuji Kaida, who was just oh, yes. at that time, I mean, he's just like, a fan like anybody else. He wasn't like at that time a well-known illustrator or anything. Uh, but I remember going over by his place, uh, on a very, very rainy Sunday afternoon and looking through all his stuff. And he had just like folders and folders full of production photographs, you know, behind the scenes stuff that oh, wow, no one had cool. ever seen. And, you know, I'm having like practically heart <laughs> failure watching, looking at this stuff. And <clears throat> so, uh, Mr. Sumi arranged for us to go visit Tsuraya Productions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so we went to Tsuraya and we got to see like a lot of old costumes and all sorts of stuff. We met a person named uh, Hiroshi Takeuchi, who was like really like the number one connected fan for 
uh, Japanese science fiction uh, at that time. And he had just, I mean, this guy had, seemed like he had everything. I mean, any poster, any photograph, any set of logic, you know, anything that had been out up to that point in time, this guy just had everything. So he was like a really well-connected guy. And <clears throat> he took us around to Raya Productions mm-hmm. that day and, you know, they were saying, well, you know, I, I don't think you really want to go to Toho because they really just don't have much of anything left over there. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And then, like, the next day we got a call from them saying, well, okay, we were able to arrange a trip for you to Toho. It's like, okay, well, I mean, maybe I'm not going to see anything, but I'm still going to see Toho, and that'll be fantastic just to see, you know, the house that Godzilla once lived in. Yeah. It's like, okay, you know, it'll be like, you know, the special grounds. So we went there the next day, and, you know, we kind of wandering around the back lot, and that was a time they were just gearing up production for Shogun, so they had, like, some of the the ships uh, built out in the back lot, like the Erasmus, uh, the main ship that you know, was in that particular TV series. So, you know, it was kind of fun to see that. And, you know, hey, we're in a movie studio. This is kind of cool. <laughs> you didn't get, and, to, get to hang out with Richard Chamberlain? <laughs> no, no, he wasn't there yet. And, or Mafune. That would have been much more oh, interesting. Yeah. And so we kind of or walk. Or, you know, we kind of walk around the back, and then we we go through this big field of weeds. I mean, this place looked like, you know, hadn't been taken care of for 20 years. And there's this little hut back there. And we walk in, and you know, uh, this is uh, Mr. Oki, the uh, the shop supervisor. Oh, yeah, nice to meet you. How you doing? And you know, there's like some miniature planes on the wall. It's like, okay, that's kind of neat to see that. And we're thinking, like, okay, well, that was nice. And they said, oh no, you can, let's go in the back here. And you go, we'll start walking down the path into the back room, and right at the end of the hallway is Titanosaurus hanging from you know a rope. Like, like <laughs> Titanosaurus, Mike. <laughs> like, holy shit! I mean, he was in terrible condition. I mean, the 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 fins on the back, you know, were all shriveled up and this basically was nothing. Like seventy nine, nineteen seventy nine. And you know, the, you can see the face is starting to fall apart. But hey, this is the real thing, just yeah. hanging there right in front of me. And you walk around a corner, it's like suddenly, you know, your heart starts racing and. Two Godzilla costumes on the floor. There's Mecha Godzilla up on a the shelf. There's Gabra in the corner. There's wow. Minya in the corner. King Caesar is in the corner. Uh, and Angelus backplate. Look up in the rafters, and there's a, a Gigan flying model, and yeah, awesome. all these little, all the little puppets from Destroy All Monsters, where you know these oh, yeah, the, the yeah, things yeah. that are on the ground at the end of the movie. They're all kind of hanging up there in various states of extreme disrepair course, but they're yeah. all there it's the real stuff and so you know we went in there with zero expectation of seeing anything uh which because that's what they told us there wasn't anything there but yeah. maybe they their interpretation of not much to see there is a little different than mine right yeah i couldn't have been happier and that was just absolutely mind-blowing experience i totally to thought that, that you were going to say the the weeds the big field of weeds was the the big pool that they hadn't taken no, care of or anything? No, big pool was you know actually one of the first things we did get to see was the big pool, mm-hmm. and this was at the time when the big pool was, you know, 
in its entirety because time by time over the years they were kind of like chopping the pool down right, in size right. and chopping it down but this was at the time where it was full size so we got to see the real full size pool which was great uh but again that's all i thought we were going to see i mean we, right, we passed yeah. by you know stage eight and nine where most of the special effects stuff was done but the you know Oh, something was being filmed in there at the time, so we weren't able to go in. So I thought, oh, okay, we saw the pool, that's great. We saw the lot, even though we didn't see anything. And I thought we were, that was all that was going to happen, but walking into that little tiny building in the back, I mean, just, just you know, beyond <laughs> stunned yeah. to see all that stuff. Even if it was in terrible condition. Be, yeah, almost be life-changing in a sense, just to be able to see that stuff, because that's... Mm-hmm. It's it's one thing to find someone who's who, who's interested in the backstory yeah. of these movies because it's they get dismissed a lot by a lot of people. Sure. Uh, but actually finding somebody that goes to Japan to uh, and and takes advantage of being there to try and learn more about the history mm-hmm. is another step beyond. And then the fact that you were able to see that stuff in obviously in a state of disrepair, but the mm-hmm. fact that you were able to even see it, I mean, that's more yeah. than. Well, right now, that's more than any fan from even 20 years back is going to be able to do because that stuff is just long gone. Long gone. Yeah. And that was, so that was, uh, that was your except first. Except for this. Except for these, yes. For those of you at home who can see the video. Yeah, this is. Uh, these are the fingernails from the Destroy All Monsters costume. This is all that's left. One of the things that when we visited at that moment mm-hmm. you know the, this was just kind of like sitting on the ground in a little bin along with the tail of destroy all monsters godzilla which is that was all that was left and you know they were nice enough to give us these two things so here's a little memento for you of, that, yeah that is so cool of godzilla, godzilla so these are fiberglass yeah, fiberglass resin. and painted silver yeah well and I, his, I, his, you see a lot a lot silver? of things well, you know, uh, it's it's not so easy to imagine when you see these things on film. But for instance, the same thing when when I went in uh, January '85 to see the 1984 Godzilla film. Mm-hmm. You know, again we got we got a chance to visit Toho and we got to see the actual filming costume, and the fins, the tips of the fins, and the nails were all painted silver. Hmm. When you put the, you know, that's what they look like in person, but. When it's under the bright lights of the cameras, oh, it just reflects it, that light. Yeah, yeah, it it kind of absorbs all that and it looks white or grayish, right? Yeah, which is what they're looking for. So yeah, when you see it in person, oh, that can't be right. That's but really cool. That's actually you know the way they painted the suits. So you actually got these on your first trip? Yes. Wow. Man, they didn't know they were just giving stuff like that away at Toho well, back in the day. They generally <laughs> no, they generally don't. But you know, I guess that was one of the things that I mean, you can easily imagine that's going to go in a trash at some point yeah so well i think i've i've heard stories about uh about the general state of disrepair i know i've seen some photos of r- trashed yeah. costumes from the from the 70s from a japanese magazine yeah. but um i've even heard that uh Subaraya productions was treating their old old school stuff really terribly you know not keeping it in good well, shape well productions had actually you know when i visited in 79 they still had a lot of the original costumes hanging in this one room and mm-hmm. I, I remember coming back to Tsubaya. gosh how many years later was that 
sometime in the 90s that I had went back, and they still had a lot of the same costumes there. They still had been preserved. Because I'm oh, talking wow. about the monster costumes. Yeah, yeah. You know, Ultraman costumes are like a dime a dozen. They, they have mounds of them because they're using them, you know, constantly in, in uh, special appearances and, you know, little shows at the exhibitions oh, right. yes, for kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, when we were there, I remember the one time there, there's like a stack of like 50 or more Ultraman. I think it was, uh, at that time it was Ultraman 80. But anyway, some Ultraman, you know, particular version of Ultraman, there's just like a mound of them sitting there because they just make them by the dozens. They, those things, they don't have any lasting power at all. Foam, yeah. ru- <laughs> foam rubber. Uh, and it's got to be pretty thin for foam, Ultraman, yeah. 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 Foam rubber and urethane foam, uh, those are not lasting materials. That's why most all the old costumes are gone, too, because it just turns into a, a horrible sticky goo. Yeah. And just, or, or it dries up and withers away. So when you went back for the 84 film, were you able to, did you go before the film was made or did, did you actually go? Oh, actually, when it was in the theater. Okay. So I went to see it as it was released in the theater. And then, so by the time we got to Toho, it was, you know, all we saw there was the suit, and we also got to go through the the prop warehouse and see you know some of the miniatures. So we got to see like the the maser uh, or those laser cannons. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the... Some of the buildings that they had used in the film, the the big uh, the Russian satellite. Mm, okay. Uh, the big gigantic model of the the Russian trawler that you know, the missile control device is on. Wow, that so, was just that was a miniature. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. So when did you get to uh, finally be on set? I know. Well, actually, I, I almost want to say I know the answer to this question, but I, I'd rather that was nineteen ninety-two. Ninety-two for Godzilla versus Mothra. Uh, finally, my friend Mr. Samia was able to uh, get us permission to visit in the summer uh, when they were filming and. Uh, it's another one of those lucky circumstances when we, when uh, we were arranging the trip to go there, and, and just shortly before uh, I arrived, he had said, "Well, you know, sorry to say, but there's not going to be too much going on when you're there. You know, we're just going to probably have a couple of shots of uh, Batra flying over Yokohama, mm-hmm. so just kind of like some aerial shots. So I don't know that you're going to get to see much. Okay, hey, I'm going to see something, so." That's already good enough for me. Right, right. Okay, you know, just I can see, say I saw the production. And so, okay, then we get there and we go to Kawakita's office before they start filming. Like, we got there like 8.30 and typically they start up at 9. So we're looking around his office and he's got like a maquette Godzilla there and, you know, some nice photos on the wall and stuff. And we're like, okay, this is kind of cool. Well, let's, let's get over to the set. So we walk down set and we go into the door for stage number 9 and... Once again, it was not what they told me it was. Instead of just seeing like Batra flying around a little bit, it was the entire Yokohama battle scene that they had oh, with set the, up. the entire park? set. So it was the amusement park and the landmark tower. Nice, gigantic <laughs> set taking wow. up all of stage nine. How? Wow. Okay, seriously. <laughs> just, just for my own, I don't even have to include this on the podcast, yeah. but like how... How does it feel to step into a room and and see that you are essentially the size of Godzilla and you can see the the buildings? Like I don't know how far away you were, but 
Oh, we could walk right up to right up to the edge edge of the set. <sighs> That's so and, cool. And at one point, although you know, I, I'm sure they really didn't want us to do it. And of course, I, I wanted to just walk out on the set because the set is is raised up off the floor. Mm-hmm. That's typically how they do it. And it's like they build a set maybe about a foot and a half, two feet off the floor, uh, so they can get you know nice and low camera angles, and you know they can run <clears throat> wires and cables and what all sorts of stuff you know under the set if they need to. Uh, but, uh, anyway, so when one, during one scene, you know, I, I want to go up on a stage, but I know like, okay, Hey, they're letting me in here. I mean, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to push yeah. my luck. And plus I can't really talk that, you know, hardly communicate to anybody anyway. And I figure if I try to go up on a stage or go near much of anything, you know, you're going to get a lot of people start, you know, screaming and gesticulating at you. So I don't want to be thrown out. Here, I'm happy to be yeah, yelled right. over and over I'm again. happy to be here. I'm going to, you know, try and mind my manners as much as possible. Uh, but there was one scene, the scene where kind of Godzilla, uh, Batra's, uh, like on the ground and Godzilla's kind of like walking up to him and, mm-hmm. and then Godzilla's going to rear back and fire his ray at Batra as Batra's sitting there right in front of him. So they're setting this shot up and now everybody gets up on the, on the set. Okay. And so Bill and I are in, and the camera, like, so the, the landmark tower is here and then Godzilla's right in front of that. And he's looking at Batra and Batra's looking at the, the thing. And the camera was right behind Batra. So everybody gets up on the stage, circling the camera. So everybody is in one spot looking at Godzilla, you know, behind the camera. It's like, okay, this is my chance. There's, there's like, you know, about two or three feet of empty space on the back of the, the raised set. So I just kind of like, oh, I think I'm just going to step up here because <laughs> just, nobody's going to notice that I'm up here and I'm not going to be in anybody's way. Right, right. Unless yeah. they suddenly all want to run backwards, which, yeah. in which case I'm going to get trampled. But so I kind of got up there and I got actually to be on the, you know, set level for that one shot. Which was pretty amazing because, you know, they said, I, I knew it. So, you know, Godzilla's going to fire his ray and so there's going to be some explosions. Okay. Good. You know, I didn't think it was going to be, you know, anything in particularly powerful or anything, you know, because they're just going to set up, you know, some squibs that will shoot some smoke up. They don't have to yeah. actually blow anything up. They just want to, you know, make it look like, you know, Godzilla's strafing him with his ray. So, you know, they, they say, action and so i had my video i was i was doing the video camera and bill had the still pictures that day and i'm up there with the camera and i'm holding it up there and godzilla walks up and satsuma kind of like rears his head back and leans forward and the guy who's operating the mouth opens the mouth by the way the guy who's operating the mouth was kamiya the guy who did later would do the special effects for gmk but anyway okay the explosion goes off. That was like 10 times more powerful than I ever expected. <laughs> that was like a stick of dynamite. It sounded like, at least in the studio, practically, you know, made me lose my hearing for a couple minutes. Really startled me beyond belief. Like I almost really fell backwards off the stage. But <laughs> oh, man. That was such a cool moment. That was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> that is cool. That's, ah, that's that was cool. great. That's a great, uh, that's a great set too. Yeah. I mean, 
because the, they've got the water there too yeah and, yeah that's really and, and that yeah all awesome. that actually all that water there it's uh it's a this little tank that's probably the water is maybe two inches deep oh yeah yeah and they have a little fan set up on the side to kind of like make the waves make the yeah. waves you know little waves but it's it's there's almost nothing i mean you could you guys were you know walking through that yeah like nothing they didn't even have to wear anything special to do it so did you get to go back a lot more or to, to the sets. Uh, I actually we we were able to see two different days of filming for Godzilla versus Mothra, mm. uh, but after that, um, really didn't have any other chance uh, to go see filming. You know, one thing I certainly don't want to overstep my bounds or like you know act like I feel like I'm entitled to do that or anything. So you know you get you get a special favor like that, and and I always feel like well I don't want to press my luck and uh, keep uh, asking of course of course uh but 10 <clears throat> yeah 10 years later i think it was yeah 10 years later uh after i'd gotten to know norman england and he had gotten some uh really fantastic access to the gmk set oh yes i was able to go see a couple of days of filming of gmk that's great which was also quite amazing got to see some really great stuff being filmed and and Norman being you know very fluent in Japanese at least compared to anybody like me and being very savvy on the set he was able to get me around to you know see things that I probably could never have seen otherwise and he introduced me to uh Ace Yamamoto which was really a, a great uh great experience to to meet him one of the real classic actors uh, you know, I couldn't be more thankful to Norman for doing all that for me. Oh yeah, uh, and, and it was really great. And and plus, you know, one thing that was also nice too is that uh, my first trip to Toho, uh, you know, myself and these other two guys from the U.S. Uh, who came with me, we visited there, and uh, the guy who got us in, Sumia, one of his friends came. His friend was Fuyuki Shinada. And, you know, at that time, he's just a college student mm -hmm. who's kind of like really keen on this stuff. And he's also likes doing sculpting in his spare time. And of course, you know, those of us who know, you know, like some of the production information on these films know that many years later in the 90s, Shinada became a suit maker and he did the Biolante suits. He did Godzilla Saurus. I mean, he worked on the Gamera films, uh, the recent Gamera films. He did Iris and Legion. Uh, so Legion's such a gorgeous suit. Yes, really gorgeous. So uh, he was actually he visited Toho with us that first time, and he was uh, the main suit maker on GMK. So oh, right, yeah. I got a chance to kind of like renew friendship with him. See him because I hadn't seen him in maybe seven or eight years. And the last time I had seen him was just after the Legion movie was made. <clears throat> so it was great to see him on the set of GMK. And at that time, one of the, the cool things they did at that time was they were he was in the process of making King Ghidra, mm -hmm. and you know the, the final suit hadn't been finished, and so he had brought in the kind of like work in progress King Ghidra for. Kamiya, the special effects director, for him to evaluate. Mm -hmm. So they, this was the first time that anybody had seen, you know, King Ghidra partially finished, and uh, you know, the first time for the actor to get in there <clears throat> and try and move it around, which is quite a different version of King Ghidra than the old traditional one, oh, which yes, is all wireworks sure. yeah, yeah. for the 
the three heads. This one, there were no wire works for the head. The right and left heads were controlled by the actor's arms, and the center head was a, was completely remote controlled. Really? Yeah. I did not know Which that was about the GMK. Really, when, and when, you, when you see it, you know, like even like that first day when they were just doing the test of having it walk around and, you know, in the, the back of the, the studio, uh, it was really amazing, you know, especially seeing that middle head just kind of like doing its own thing by remote control. Yeah. Looked really good. And then, you know, the, the side heads, the guy's using his hands and he's being very demonstrative with it. That's very cool. But, but yeah, it's, it, it's a quite a different concept of King Ghidra than oh, yeah. the usual. As, as I've heard so many people say, uh, about King Ghidra. So that was, uh, you were also able to do a lot of information gathering yeah. on that trip because that's, yeah. I would imagine a, a majority of, of your GMK issue came from. Not necessarily from the just that. I mean, of course, you know, I, I got a lot of, you know, personal experience from that, but, uh, you know, Norman was on the set for most all of the shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mean, I don't know how many, as a percentage, how many days he was there, but a very good, strong percentage he was there. So, I mean, we were in constant contact, so I was hearing a lot of information from him. Of course, he became very good friends with uh, Shusuke Kaneko, the director. Yes. And uh, so, <clears throat> like, after the film got released, I also got to meet with Kaneko and get an interview with him about the film. So, you know, a lot of my information about GMK kind of evolved over time yeah the experience on the set was terrific uh but you know talking with norman i was able to absorb a lot of information Hmm. seeing his pictures and you know him arranging for me to you know meet with people i mean i i owe a great deal you know to norman for you know what i was able to accomplish on that issue that's very very awesome that you were able to go and be on those two sets that's what was uh what were did, so you got to visit the actual set as well for GMK? Yeah, well, I was there for <clears throat> Godzilla and Baragon fighting. Uh, like, there's the one shot where Godzilla's kind of chasing Baragon as he crawls up the hill towards mm-hmm. the, the cable car station. Uh, I was there for that. And you know, there were, like, lots of little insert shots of Godzilla or Baragon. And there's also where Baragon kind of pops out of the side of the hill yeah. and, and, and starts to attack Godzilla. That, uh, I also saw them, you know, filming that. And I got to see Amamoto do his big scene where he's actually in the, the police station and he does that long speech. Mm. Got to see the whole thing. Wow. That's and cool. And he, he was just amazing. You know, he, you can see the big difference between a guy like that, a pro actor, mm. and a lot of these other, you know, actors that, so-called actors, who are mostly like <laughs> idol stars and that. I mean, huge difference. I mean, he would sit there for, you know, 20, 30 minutes at a time, holding his pose, holding his concentration, just waiting for all the guys to set up everything. And then when Kaneko said, you know, okay, let's go. I mean, like just like that, he was right in character. He did, you know, this whole long speech in one, basically one take. Wow. Did a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, do they do, I mean, on, on Japanese sets, do they have a lot of takes of things? Is it all business? Like- well, I mean, what, what I'm seeing, you know, most, most everything I saw is special effects. And oh, right. Yeah. There's not much in the way of, you know, retakes unless they just blow it. 
<clears throat> on you know the the stuff that the the little bit that I saw live action filming you know the the drama filming which was the that one day where I saw Amamoto doing his scene I didn't see you know what I would consider like um, any number of retakes I think uh, they had Amamoto do the the whole speech once in rehearsal and I think there was some sound problem where they had to do it a second time uh, but like one or two takes of each scene and it seemed like you know they got Kaneko got what he was looking for but I'm sure that you know if, if wasn't coming out the way he wanted they they probably would have done uh, numerous takes I yeah. have no doubt of that I just had just kind of curious about the the Japanese filmmaking machine of, yeah. of today and if it's uh well yeah I mean I saw about you know screen time I saw maybe about 30 or 40 yeah. seconds being filmed so that's not a big sample size right on so what uh what do you do you have anything I know you've got you know something planned now you're working on the book with with uh with Steve for for Ishiro Honda's life. Yes. Uh, how is that going so far? Pretty good. Very slow because there was so much research that we you know felt we needed to do. One thing that uh, you know in order to tell his story properly, uh, we strongly felt that one thing we needed to do was see all of his films, not just science fiction films, mm-hmm. because this guy you know there's a lot more to Ishiro Honda than just science fiction. Uh, in special effects and he's made any number of other you know nice really wonderful films that nobody knows about at least not in this country you mm-hmm. know probably even in japan a lot of those films are not particularly well known but he's made you know a number of uh comedies and uh nice family dramas uh he did a biography of <clears throat> uh, a baseball player named it now who was mm-hmm. like just a phenomenon, a phenomenon in the, the late fifties in Japan. Uh, lots of interesting little films, and you know they they show a whole different side of uh, Ishiro Honda than just science fiction. And of course, yes, he became most famous for that, and you know that's our core. You know that's why we're interested in him to begin with. But, oh, of course, yes, yes. But I mean, there's so much more that you can find out about him by seeing his other films. So we, you know took time and working with the Honda family we were able to dig up copies of all the films and uh, his granddaughter Yuko who lives in New York she's been just absolutely fabulous in working with us and helping us out on all sorts of things she went through all of these movies with us and helped translate partially or in some cases fully you know all these other films so that we could really appreciate what's happening in the films and you know understand the story and, and therefore appreciate what he's adding uh to all these films so you know it took us several years to go th- to get to see all of them except mm-hmm. so we, we've now seen all of them except one film which is a die film that doesn't seem like there's a copy anywhere that uh, we can access we know that die has a print because they showed it at a film festival a few years ago okay uh, in fact you know Kaneko uh, actually was at that festival, and he kind of wrote a very nice summary of the the film for us, and uh, he also gave us his thoughts about it, which are really interesting. So, you know, in gathering all that information, that was one of the main pieces of research we were doing. But in addition to that, you know, we I had a couple of trips to Japan, uh, some kind of or piggybacked on top of my business trips, mm-hmm. which is nice to be able to get something done that way. But also I, I had a couple of 
dedicated trips to Japan for doing interviews with whoever we could find right. that you yeah. know has worked with him, uh, colleagues of his. <clears throat> so we got uh, probably about seventeen or eighteen original interviews, uh, also with his family members. And that's taken enormous amount of time to get translated. Right. And now we have this massive information that you have to try and find a way to, to pick all the best stuff out and work into a narrative. So, you know, we've been kind of hard at the writing for the last year or so. And I don't know if we'll make it, but at least we have set ourselves a deadline mm -hmm. at the end of July this year to have at least a first draft done. Uh, and then I'm sure that, you know, then we can let the family take a look at that and, you know, give us their comments and suggestions or whatever. And, you know, of course, we're going to then, you know, look at it ourselves and revise it. But it's coming along and it's, it's, we hope it's going to be done and published next year. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly when next year. Uh, but. I would I would think that probably the publisher is wise to try and get it out after the American Godzilla film comes out. Oh right, yes, yeah. Steve, we talked about that yeah. with Steve too. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure he gave you his thoughts. On <laughs> yeah, that. he did. He, he certainly did. <laughs> yeah. Um. So if you if you could tell, then uh, I understand mm -hmm. that a majority of Honda's films that are non Godzilla are not available. Yes. Um. It, at least in the states. All Actually, of them. all of all them. of them. So okay. So. So is I'm there no point of, of me of even saying like if you could suggest a non Godzilla film that Honda did like what would what would it be that people <sighs> well, in the yeah. states could maybe get their hands on somehow well, yeah some I, way. I don't know that any, you can get a, a hold of any of his films although some of, a few of them are available on pre recorded video in Japan mm -hmm. so like uh, Saraba Rabal Farewell Rabal which is a, a war film. Uh, and uh, Eagle of the Pacific, which is the life story of Admiral Yamamoto. Okay. Those films I know were available uh, from Toho Video. Hmm. But most most of the other ones, Come Marry Me is another one. That's a like a, a kind of you know comedy drama film with Yuzo Kayama that was done in the 60s. <clears throat> That's also, I know, available on Toho Video. So if you go to Japan, you can probably find them on video, but... Again, no subtitles, right, all Japanese yeah. only. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, and they are quite difficult to you know pierce and you know, enjoy fully without having uh, the, the subtitles or at least some pretty good knowledge of Japanese. I mean, right. I, when we were working on these things, what I would always first try to do is go through each film before you know, to try and help Yuko out. I would go through each film myself and watch it and kind of lay out what I think is happening, Yes, <laughs> which mostly was okay, but not always, but try and lay out all the sequence of events. And then she would kind of like fill in the important details we should know about each one. And that helped us a lot. Sometimes you know, she just like translated dialogue fully. Right. And it really helped a lot. So you don't speak Japanese. Uh, uh, she. I can, I can, yeah, I can understand <laughs> I certainly can't speak. Uh, what about read? Yeah. I can read a little bit and I can understand, you know, spoken, depending on what's being said and mm. how fast it's being said, some, but not a lot. All but, right. but, you know, like, like at, at my, at my office, I understand enough to 
keep everybody on their guard because they they're not quite sure just how much I'm really understanding. So <laughs> so they they always have to be you know a little careful or a little more uh, honest mm-hmm. in their conversation in my presence because. Yeah, I might understand that. And, right. Yeah. So be careful. <laughs> it's kind of kind of nice to be able to keep. Never let on, on your your yeah. Japanese poker face, poker ear. Oh yeah, I guess. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, I guess uh, that's pretty much all I had for you. It's we're at pretty much exactly an hour, man. So mm. thank you so much for taking the time with me while I was here in Chicago oh, to talk about this stuff. And seriously, like I said before we started recording, if you're in Portland. I would love to to have you come over and, and talk some more about stuff. Sure. I'd love to. Cool. Uh, so, uh, yeah, go to JapaneseGiants.com if you yes. want a copy of those magazines. And uh, that's about it. Jamata. This is United Nations reporter Eric Carter with the news. The world is stunned to discover that prehistoric creatures exist in the 20th century. The armies have been alerted as we wait for more news from Japan. So we really only have one news item this episode, and that's good because, uh, like I said, I want this to be a low-key as far as uh, editing episode. Anyway, just recently, I think maybe yesterday for me, UrbanCollector.com posted several Godzilla collectibles uh, from 2014. So they're, they've already have, uh, these pre-orders up for Godzilla figures for the new Legendary Pictures Godzilla movie. I'll have a link in the show notes to Urban Collector's Godzilla search results, I guess. And, um, check it out. The descriptions are kind of interesting. They call, uh, some of the things that Godzilla is going to fight mutos, which some people are, um, inferring that that means mutation abbreviation so mutated animals mutated somethings who knows uh it's just kind of kind of interesting that they they've uh they've already got it up for pre-order which means that um that bandai or whoever's making these is actually already scheduled to you know they've already got sort of their information out there now the one thing that uh made me kind of squeal with glee is that uh (laughs) some of the figures actually have an atomic breath feature so I'm hoping that means Godzilla's going to have his atomic breath in the movie. Moving on, uh, we have just two more things to talk about before we close out the show. Uh, the next thing I wanted to share with you is that at the uh, comic book convention in Los Angeles called Kamikaze, which is basically Stan Lee's comic book convention. I think Elvira has something to do with it as well. Keith Foster of Big Pimp Jones and the Kadoja Project. You've heard him on the show a few times, and you know he's definitely a fan of the show and a listener, and he's also a friend of mine. He's going to be moderating a panel at Kamikaze called Giant Kaiju Monsters versus Men in Suits Attack Japan and Hollywood. Now, that's awesome. It sounds really cool, but check out who is going to be part of this. Panelists will include Frank Woodward, director of Men in Suits and uh, Lovecraft, Fear of the Unknown, Steve Rifle, Godzilla author, and Chris Mowry from Godzilla Rulers of Earth. It's sort of like a kaiju cast best of <laughs> guest lineup. Not saying my other guests aren't, aren't awesome as well. But yeah, check that out if you're in the L.A. area. I wish I could go. I really hope to hear it after the fact. So, Keith, if you're listening, make sure you get that recorded for me. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much our big items for, for news and stuff. One more thing I wanted to mention is that, uh, we did get a few more people who have signed up for the Kaiju Core. And because I actually cannot remember, 
if if I shared their names, I wanted to just thank those people publicly for their support, and uh, I really appreciate any new Kaiju Core members. But so far, we've got Mike Weber, Andrew Campbell, Harold Clark, Benjamin Erickson, Jay Short, and Michael Benjamin. You guys are the awesomest. And uh, just because you're so rad, here's a really killer Godzilla roar. So salute, goodbye, etc. And thank you guys so much for your support. I really, really do appreciate that. Uh, last but not least, as far as uh, announcing things, housekeeping items, if you want to submit your homework for the next Daikaiju discussion, which is Matango, the 1963 Attack of the Mushroom People, uh, make sure you send in your homework by November 23rd so we can get that included in the last episode of November. That is it. Uh, normally I say all that stuff about if you found us through iTunes, yada, yada, yada. But hey, go to kaijucast.com. Check us out on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, uh, Instagram. We're on Stitcher. We're also on the um, the Mediocre Radio Network, which is awesome as well. If you want to join the Kaiju Corps, just go to kaijucast.com slash support. And uh, and check that out. We are going to close out the show with the end title song to Gamera 3 for Jackson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next month. Jamata. Ja,